The World Bank was set up in 1944. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the institution was there to give loans to countries rebuilding after the conflict. The first loan went to France, but with stipulations about repayment that set a tone for future funds. In 1999, the BMJ ran a series of articles on the World Bank, authored by our current deputy editor, Cameron Abassi. The article set out the bank's move into funding global health, and highlighted some criticisms about its processes. Now, a new series published on bmj.com looks at where the World Bank has come in the last 18 years, how much global health it's funding now, and explaining some of its new models of finance. The series is authored by Devi Shrida and her team from the University of Edinburgh, and the articles will cover the World Bank's turn to universal health coverage, how the bank's trust funds are being used to fund specific projects, and why it's hard to know what those are. Its new global financing facility, that has grants and loans supplied together, and finally, how they're creating a market out of pandemic insurance. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and in this final interview of the series, I'm talking to Felix Stein, a research fellow at the University of Edinburgh, about the bank's attempt to create a new market in catastrophic pandemic insurance. Hi Felix, thanks for talking to us. Hi, thanks for, uh, thanks for your time. Um, so, the title of your article is Creating a Market for Pandemic Risks, which, to someone who's not an economist, sounds pretty horrific. Um, yeah. Presumably the bank isn't trying to actually set up a market for pandemics. So, what does that actually mean? Um, no, uh, the bank's not trying to buy or sell pandemics to anyone. Uh, and I... I um, I don't think anyone else uh, wants to do that either. I also want to just start with a brief caveat that I cannot really speak for the bank here, but I just speak about uh, what this looks to uh, to an academic outsider. Uh, and, and to me, it seems to me that uh, many people in the global health governance world and also many people in the World Bank uh, think that finance is a crucial aspect of preparing for the next pandemic. Uh, and that is pretty uncontroversial. So to put this very simply, they think that having some pot of money on the side in case a pandemic outbreak happens in the future is a good thing uh, to basically use that money uh, uh, as soon as uh, something big happens. Uh, however, the bank also seems to think that involving private sector investors should be a very important part of creating this financial cushion. And it's here that they believe that pandemic risk reduction should be a target of private sector profit making. And it's it's really in this sense that they hold that there may be a market around pandemic risk mitigation. Mm. And um, to do that, they're setting up these sort of two big insurance-like funds, yes. um, $500 million for big catastrophes, a bit like the Ebola outbreak that we saw recently, and also something like pandemic flu, if that was to come back. Um, and then a smaller 50 to 100 million-ish um, for smaller outbreaks. And it's this larger one that they're trying to make into this fund that's going to seek private investment. Yes. Who is it that they want to invest in it? Um, so 
the investments are supposed to come from reinsurance companies, investment banks, and any kind of investment groups that you can find on Wall Street. Basically, anyone who's happy and willing to buy the bonds that the bank is going to um, to give out as part of this uh, insurance mechanism called the PEF. Um, uh, they will then hold these bonds for three years and they risk losing their money during this time uh, in case of a pandemic outbreak. Um, but if there isn't a pandemic outbreak, then they get their money back after three years, they give the bonds back. And in the meantime, they get an uh, interest payment, um, an annual one uh, for risking that they, are lose they might be losing their money. Uh, the person the, or the people paying for this should be donors and member countries such as Germany or Japan, for example, uh, who give money to the bank and who then compensates the private sector players uh, for the risk that they incur whilst putting their money in that fund. Mm. Um, so obviously, if they're investors, they want a return on their investment. How much of a return is the bank kind of offering here? Well, that's still a little bit hard to tell, but roughly speaking, it looks really lucrative uh, for people who want to buy these bonds because uh, in, the pro in the appraisal documents that we have analyzed, um, uh, the range of interest rates is between 11 and 12% of coverage. Um, and then I've just looked at some investor website estimates where uh, it sounds like the more risky bonds can yield up to 12% a year, whereas the less risky bonds can yield, I think, between 7 and 8% return, which is all really good. Yeah, I mean, that's from an investor's point of view, that makes sense. But then I wonder, from the World Bank, you know, what are they getting out of it? Because insurance as a market works because people pay in more cumulatively than the cost of goods that are eventually kind of paid out. And so the insurance market, um, companies can take a profit from that. Um, and it works for individuals because that risk is pooled across everyone. So they don't all put in the amount that they might potentially claim back. Um, but there isn't going to be that sort of risk pooling here. Um, so how, how does it work if, you know, how does it work for the bank economically? Um, uh, yeah, so uh, for the bank, this works on a couple of levels. On the one hand, the bank uh, uh, believes that uh, working in global health is a really good way of bringing about economic growth in the medium term. And there are more and more papers coming out of, of the link uh, between uh, having a healthy population and uh, having GDP growth. And so they're really fulfilling their mandate here of bringing about economic growth in, in poor countries. Um, and at the same time, they are creating a new market, and that is also part of their mandate. And so they are really uh, working on poverty um, alleviation, uh, economic growth, and on creating new markets all at the same time. So from the bank's perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Um, from an from uh, an insurance perspective, it's a little bit more difficult because I, I would say that insurance works uh, first and foremost because I care about the people that I insure, which is very often why we take out insurance for ourselves. Uh, and in the case of life insurance, we take out insurance for the people uh, we love, for our families in case anything happens to us. Now, this is not the case here. Here, uh, 
the people who are being insured, namely people in the world's poorest countries, aren't taking out the insurance. The insurance is paid for by member countries of the World Bank and the coverage is brought in by Wall Street. So this is already a lot more complicated than normal insurance stuff that we might be used for, uh, might be used to. And I think the appeal that this is supposed to have is that for every dollar of donor money that goes in, the World Bank uh, can say that it leverages several dollars in private sector coverage. And by leverage, they just mean they attract that, Uh, which is just a complicated way of saying that um, the private sector brings the coverage and we pay it for bringing that coverage. I'm not sure I've answered your question. Here. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's what I mean, there's a couple of things to unpack there. So yeah. firstly, you know, why private sector involvement in this, though? Because if they are going to pay out 12% a year for, for the risky funds, um, within 10 years, they've penned out more money than they would have done, you know, yeah. if they just put that into the bank themselves, like just, yeah. you know, put that into a pot themselves. Um, and these huge pandemics, they don't come around every 10 uh, years. So it seems like it's just a way of moving money into the private sector. Uh, well, whether that's the case or not is something that I think the World Bank should explain. Uh, so, um, But I think you, you uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, first of all, it all depends on how likely it is that there will be a pandemic outbreak how big it's going to be, and whether it will fulfill the payout criteria of this insurance mechanism. And these are, uh, these big pandemics are really unlikely events, but when they happen, they have tremendous economic impacts, which uh, is why this whole uh, mechanism has been based on other such events, such as hurricanes or earthquakes, uh, and is modeled on uh, already existing catastrophe bonds. And what's notorious about these is that they're really hard to forecast and it's really hard to thereby determine how big the coverage should be, how likely it is that anything happens and how much should be paid in interest. So, so that, that makes it very well, that makes it difficult, I think, for donors to put money into this because I would I as a donor, I simply wouldn't know whether to pay uh, private sector investors uh, five or seven or 12 percent for fronting their money. So I, fi- I find that very complicated. Um, It can, of course, be uh, interesting to attract the private sector into all kinds of insurance schemes, because they just have so much money. Private sector finance has been rising and rising as compared to all other parts of uh, economic life over the past 30 to 40 years. And so there's just a lot of money floating around. And the World Bank is trying to be a broker that makes that money work for uh, people in poverty somehow. So that makes sense on this kind of abstract level. But I think if we look really closely here, there's, uh, there's a couple of problems. And one of these is that I personally don't see why Germany and Japan and rich donor countries shouldn't just put that money aside themselves. Uh, it might be harder to convince them if I cannot promise them um, an innovative and creative new mechanism. But I think looking at the details, uh, I, I would find that more convincing. Sure. I mean, this is something that you, you mentioned briefly there, but who would it be that would decide this is a pandemic that's worth triggering this insurance fund for? Um, uh, so this is also not 
too easy to pin down, but the way in which it looks is that uh, countries would have to uh, uh, tell the WHO what is happening uh, in terms of health uh, when they think that there uh, that a pandemic um, uh, might occur. So uh, the WHO would then be involved in determining what kind of disease uh, people are actually dealing with. Uh, and the countries would have to report to the PEF coordinator, which is likely to be sitting in the World Bank, uh, how large the size of an outbreak is, um, how fast the growth rate of it is, how many countries are affected, um, and other uh, spe specifics of what is happening. And then once the payout criteria are met, um, this PEF coordinator would get in contact with a private company called AIR Worldwide, which holds the payout model, which is unfortunately um, confidential. So I don't really know the specifics of that model, uh, but they would then verify and determine how much money is paid out and to whom. Now, I don't know where you would locate the kind of point of decision making in this process but it seems to involve a couple of uh, a couple of groups at the same time mm, and worrying if it's not a transparent process well yeah uh, so the global health world is already incredibly complicated and this is also a fairly complicated mechanism um, that is being brought in so yes i think it will be hard for uh, some people who may be considered in the future covered by this mechanism to actually know whether they are covered or not, because there are a lot of players and a lot of models and a lot of risk assessments that are involved in it. Um, I think if we look more closely, that is the case for a lot of insurances uh, that exist out there um, in the world, but it, it does seem to be particularly uh, complicated in this instance. I'm just gonna go back to a point that you made a little bit earlier about the World sure. Bank. Um, having data that says investing in health is a good thing and that's kind of what the basis of all the health in the SDG policies is it's it's a good primer for for uh, increasing development but this fund wouldn't do that this isn't actually going into help people on the ground improve the health of individuals this is just saying we will pay out in the event that there is a catastrophe and help you mop up afterwards so does that actually fulfill the World Bank's, you know, investment criteria there? Um, I think that, I don't know, I think that would be a question to ask the World Bank, but I think um, it does do a couple of interesting things that are also worth highlighting. Um, one is, so if I want to mitigate the risk of having an accident, I can do a couple of things. I can take out, uh, well, I can drive more carefully, or I can not get drunk before I start driving, or I can have the brakes of my car checked, or I can take insurance out. And the best is probably if I do all of these. Um, and so you're right, this is just addressing the financial aspects of a future pandemic. And it is not used, it is not using that kind of donor money to uh, improve health systems today, which might be a non-financialized form of risk mitigation. So that's true. That said, large parts of the uh, global health world are convinced that it is worthwhile also having that financial cushion. And the World Bank has some expertise in finance because uh, it's been in the business of 
providing bonds and loans and other financial instruments uh, basically for decades. So in that sense, it is interesting. It's also interesting that this is not an indemnity insurance. So this is not about having a pandemic, then trying to figure out what the costs are and getting these reimbursed. But it's an insurance that sets the payout criteria first and then makes the payout available really quickly. So that's interesting as well. And lastly, um, some people in this um, who are involved in this uh, would argue that there's a, there's a cycle of panic and neglect going on uh, in, in pandemic preparedness. So when there is a pandemic, everybody's in a panic about it. And then when there isn't one, people perfectly neglect getting prepared for the next one. And so building an insurance is a nice way of having uh, of countering that trend. So all of these things, uh, I think, are positive. What I'm what the real question is to me is who should provide the coverage and as your question implies how big should the money in in an insurance actually be as compared to how big is the money that is invested in pandemic preparedness on the ground today mm. um so it sounds like you are quite skeptical of um this as a as a mechanism to kind of increase pandemic preparedness uh am i right in saying that I hope that doesn't come out too clearly in the article because I try to keep this objective. But um, so far, yes, I would, I would like to see answers to the questions that are raised in the article. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, lastly, uh, in your conclusion, you say that we have to keep an eye out um, on how well business and financial interests are actually aligned with kind of global health interests. Mm. Um, and it seems, I don't know, in the zeitgeist that this is becoming more apparent in a lot of ways. Um, do you think generally within the World Bank, within other sort of global health funds, we're moving away from that more free market approach um, that probably would have characterised earlier World Bank uh, operations? Um, or is it really just business as usual there and this is, this is showing that? Well, I've... Two things. One is the annoying academic answer that I can that I shortly need to give, which is that the World Bank is a very large institution, uh, and I, it's a little bit. I'm a little bit uncomfortable in in analyzing it as this one big chunk that does one thing. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who are very skeptical of private sector involvement in the World Bank, and others who are totally for it. Uh, but then uh, the answer that might be more satisfying to you is that uh, the big big picture answer may be that, yes, the World Bank has moved away from its more aggressive 1980 structural adjustment approach um, to economic development and has experimented with other ways of bringing about socioeconomic well-being uh, and of living up to its own mandate of uh, bringing about new markets. That said, I... Um, I think two trends are currently uh, indicating that they might go back to what used to be done before. Uh, one of this is that the World Bank is not independent of the U.S. American government. 
Um, there's uh, in the United States currently a rise of a new national belief in big business uh, and anything that looks makes the bank look like an NGO that gives out too much money uh, for people without really knowing whether it does or doesn't create economic growth is problematic and it's currently hard to sell in Washington, which was also the case in the 1980s. Um, and the second tendency is that uh, is the one that I mentioned earlier on, which is the rise uh, rise of finance, which really puts the bank under pressure to reinvent itself from being a lender to being a broker for the private sector. So the bank currently increasingly understands its role as working in the interests of uh, not just the people in poverty around the globe, but also financial investors and kind of make them meet in the middle and whether these people uh, can meet in the middle and under which circumstances is really up for debate. Great. Well, it's an interesting picture as all these articles kind of are beginning to paint for us. Um, so Felix, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it all in print and online. You've been listening to Felix Stein talk about the World Bank's attempt to create a new market in catastrophic pandemic insurance. The article to accompany this interview, plus all of the others in the series, and all of the podcast interviews, are now available on bmj.com. If you've enjoyed this, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're available in most places now. There you'll also find over 200 previous episodes, all available for free. Thanks for listening.